The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. I'm Zach Charles and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today's guest is Kenny Greenberg. Kenny Greenberg made his impact on the Nashville studio scene by having a rock-influenced tone and playing that uh, helped him, you know, cement his own place here in, in Nashville. He is the uh, musical director and producer of the Skyville Live Show. He's been touring arenas and stadiums with Kenny Chesney. You can also catch him uh, playing with his singer-songwriter wife, Ashley Cleveland, and you can sometimes catch him around playing with Pat McLaughlin. So happy to have you on the, on the show today, yeah. and thank you for uh, letting us be in your home today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Welcome. Tell us, uh, how, did you, how did you start playing the guitar? Uh, I started playing as a kid, and I actually studied cla classical music as a kid. I played trombone and cello, yeah. and uh, not very well, but, but I played it, and... Uh, in school band and, and orchestra, and um, and then I gravitated towards the guitar, and um, actually quit school when I was 19, and moved down to Nashville, started what, playing guitar. Now yeah. What, being a you know more of a rock player, what made you want to move to Nashville? Uh, I was I'm from Cleveland, but I was living I, I went to high school in Louisville, Kentucky, and. Um, I was just banging around there, you know, after well, when I got out of school and uh, I met a, a drummer that um, that played in a country band out of Nashville. He said, you got to come to Nashville. It's so close. There's so many cool things happening. And he was getting ready to go on a national tour and his wife was six months pregnant. So he so me and my best friend, Jeff, that played bass, um, he said, if you guys will stay at my house so someone is there to be with my pregnant wife so she's safe, you know, she's not there uh, by herself. Um, I'll give you a free place to live. So we moved down here. We moved down here and just kind of got into the club scene and, you know, just banging around playing in bands. What? And there was a really cool scene here. It was really fun. Yeah, what year was this? 1978. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because the the kind of rock scene in, in Nashville didn't There really was no rock scene yeah, in it, there. There well, wasn't any scene in yeah, Nashville. But it kind of started to take off later with like Jason and the Scorchers and Webb Wilder yeah, and some other things oh, in yeah. the mid-80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually moved down here and got into a blues band like right away. It's really weird, you know, because I was in the outlaw thing that was going on. Yeah. In the early Whalen records and Paycheck. And I actually got to be friends with Paycheck. We would hang out and stay out all night and see things that I'd never seen before. But um, I was in this blues band and we were a popular band playing around town and we toured around and on the college circuit and stuff. And and we got to be really good friends with, with Jason and the Scorchers and some yeah. of those bands. Actually, Warner Hodges, the guitar player for the Scorchers was a big influence on me. I learned a lot about like rock and roll, guitar playing, and also how to be on stage from Warner who's yeah. like the ultimate showman. He's a great, great guy. He knows how to stand up there and deliver. Oh, when, yeah. when the Scorchers were, I mean, they were on poised to be the next big national band, and they had a major record deal, and they were with R.E.M. on tour, and uh, so it was it was lo lots of fun being around. I got some great Scorchers story, probably not appropriate for... For, for the kids. Uh, but it's it, they were awesome. Yeah. So this blues band, did that morph into the King Snakes? No, I was just playing in this blues band, and the guy is called the Bobby Bradford Blues Band. Okay. And um, this guy, Bobby Bradford, actually owned a bar out on the Cumberland River, this really funky biker bar. And me and my buddy Jeff lived in the back of it. We'd tend bar for all the guys working on the barges uh, yeah. during the day, and then we'd play in the band at night. But he also did singer-songwriter things, and so... Songwriters, like on a Tuesday night, the songwriters would come out and play their songs. There'd be three or four songwriters. So I would meet them and 
maybe I would get up and play with him. And I was like 20, 21 at the time. So I'd get up and play with him. And then they would say, hey, I'm going to go in and cut a demo of my songs. You know, you want to come play on it? So it was a way to meet people making music in Nashville. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of more, not really the mainstream country thing, more the kind of left to center underground scene, which was starting to develop. And so I was very involved in that. So the way I got into doing studio work was this little band I was in. I would meet these songwriters, play on their demos, and then you meet someone else that's at the studio, and they say, hey, he works cheap. Let's get him to you know, come play on our demo. And, yeah. and, and then one of those songwriters would get a record deal, and someone would like a song, a part you played on their demo, and say, hey, let's get the guy that played on the demo to play on the record. And you know, next thing you know, you're playing on a record. But I mean, yeah. it takes it takes a number of years. It's not it's not like it instantaneously happened. Yeah. I was banging around, playing in local bands, and but it was it was awesome. Yeah. It was great. So you you moved to town in '78, mm -hmm. and then was uh, Tear Stained Letter the first number one that or the first hit? It's record the first number one record I played on. Yeah. And that there was a guy named Richard Bennett. Yes. He's a very, yeah. you know, highly regarded guitar player. And when I first started to get into more of the studio scene, I ended up playing with him some. And he he, he was a big influence on my playing, yeah. especially playing a Gretsch and playing those kind of Gretsch big, big body guitar parts. And um, he was producing, he was producing Amy Lou and a number of people at that time. So he was producing this guy, Joel Saunier, I can't remember how. Somehow I ended up playing on that record, and um, but it was really Richard coaching me through the parts, helping me get my guitar sound, and a lot of times I actually played through his rig. So um, so I played on, on Joel Saunier, who had a record deal on RCA, mm -hmm. and I played on his showcase and played on his record, and so that song, Tear Stain Letter, was a number one. And it was really, you know, the credit goes uh, to Richard Bennett because he actually sat there and coached me through how to play the parts and, and, and he sort of guided me. It's got a couple of big, long solos in it. Yeah. He sort of guided me through how to do it. And it was an incredible experience for me. Yeah. And uh, I owe a lot to him for that. That, that was, what a, what a valuable lesson and, and what a... Oh, an investment in you for Richard to take the time to coach you through that instead of him just playing it himself or, or oh, he could have played it yeah. in five minutes himself you know yeah. so he's very gracious about that and he's that kind of guy and actually the first demo I played on for my wife long before we were a couple I just kind of knew her you know uh, Richard was the main guitar player I think that's how we met maybe that's how we met I'm not sure but anyways we um I played on a uh, um my wife's demos and Richard was there. It's like, wow, Richard Bennett is here. This is amazing, you know. And he played all these just incredible parts, and I was just sitting there soaking it up, trying to imitate what he was doing. Yeah. What were some of the things that uh, that Richard showed you when he was coaching you through, you know, being on this first, you know, major session? Well, that you were I mean, on? he had this great way of playing, you know. I mean, the whole way of using a wang bar. I mean, I've got a Gretsch over there, but I'll just do do it on here. You know, like, you know. Guitar. I mean, he's an incredible rhythm player. So he would do this thing on an acoustic when he would play rhythm instead of just going. Or so. Here we go. And he had to swing. Played and there was just the way you moved your hand. There was a swing to go like this, is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And it sort of 
you know, to me, you know, playing Texas blues, I mean, I'm not from Texas, and I'm just a fan of Texas blues. It's not dissimilar from Stevie Ray going... <laughs> kind of you know hand yeah. movement it's a way to play rhythm and get in swing and not play you know which is, isn't bad but it's stiffer you know yeah. you can really swing when you're playing and I, I, I learned that uh, from Richard yeah so you had mentioned uh, your wife Ashley Cleveland earlier so yeah. tell us how you met Ashley uh, we were just uh, um, sort of in the same friend group of musicians and writers, you know, and that would be like Gary Nicholson, you know, that produced Delbert McClinton, but right. he's a writer and wrote a bunch of hits and Wally Wilson and um, uh, Pam Tillis. And uh, there's just this group of people that were all coming up together. And we were, once again, we were kind of more the left of center. We weren't really by any stretch of the imagination in, in the country mainstream. And, you know, we would all play on each other's gigs and hang out together and go to each other's gigs. And Ashley was was in that scene. And um, it was fascinating to me because she was like, and we were friends for years and years before we were together as a couple. We were just buds. And, and she would play gigs and... It's, she sort of, back in the day, you know, she'd show up and she would dress, kind of dress like a school teacher. She was really square the way she dressed. And uh, she's probably upstairs and she'd kill me. But she, and she, um, but she sang like Etta James or Janis Joplin or something. Yeah. So it's like, who is this weird person that sings like that and looks like that? And we all loved her. She was just great and a great spirit and it was, was writing great songs. And so I ended up playing in her band. I played in her band for, gosh you know, three years, and I'd known her before that. I played in her band, and then we kind of slowly became a couple. And your your studio career, now after after playing on a, on a number one, did it just blow up, or did it, it, it no, still took no, some time? No, it didn't really yeah. blow up. I don't think anything's ever really blown up. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, I just slowly assimilated into recording, and, um, you know, it's a tricky thing. It's hard to it, it, it's it's hard to define. It just these things, just little things happen along the way. There wasn't one piv pivotal moment. I mean, playing on a hit record certainly helped. Yeah. But um, and I was never really into being a full time studio guy because I always wanted to produce records and play in bands and write songs. So I was always kind of bound, which I still do. That's yeah. really what I do. I mean, I, I guess. In some ways, I'm known as a studio guy, but I don't do sessions every day. I do sessions a lot, but I also I'm producing a couple of records right now. I'm producing Josh Turner right now, right, and uh, and I'm writing songs, and uh, and then I tour. So I really like to bounce around and do different things. So just things slowly. I found my niche. Of there were certain people that would call me, go, okay, we want something that's you know not, you know, if you want Brent Mason. You know, you don't want me. You yeah. know, he's amazing. And the stuff he does, I'm just not, I, I don't, I, I can get close to that if I if I need, if I can have that in my toolbox. Yeah. But, you know, if you want that, you should call Brent, Brent Mason or James Mitchell or J.T. Cornfloss. I sort of bring a slightly different thing yeah. to the studio. How would, you, how would you describe your slightly different thing? It's hard to describe yourself. I mean, really, yeah. you know, what are you, what are you supposed to say? So it's like, um, I think the way I play is I'm not like a technical perfectionist and I don't have big fast chops, but on in recording sessions I have really good ideas for parts and I'm a really good rhythm player yeah. and and my sounds are always a little left to center. I think that's through the years, I think that's what I bring to the table. Yeah. That's kind of what I do. You know, and I've tried really hard to be the technical perfectionist or to have a lot of chops. I've tried to do that and it, and it just sort of never really works. <laughs> I just end up doing, you know, yeah. kind of fumbling around and some things happen, yeah. really. 
to hit on what you said earlier about the different roles that you that you play, mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting seeing that you know you you got into production pretty early on, mm -hmm. and then and also into songwriting. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. had uh, you you were one of the writers on uh, Amy Grant's House of Love yes. and, and some other other yeah. hits, and you were yeah. producing Joan Bias and Joan and, Bias. Yeah, yes. she was just in town the other day. Yeah, yeah. Joan Bias. Yeah. yeah, and then of course Josh Turner and and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So is that is that part of just uh, your uh, keeping your livelihood, or is that kind of part of you know kind of scratching an itch by playing all these different roles? I think it's a combination of keeping a livelihood, and also it's just kind of what I gravitate towards. I get juice from doing different things. Yeah. You know, I, I I bounce around. I mean, I have huge admiration for uh, Derek Wells and Rob McNally, and you know. Um, uh, Danny Rader and you know they they're doing sessions every day you know and they're incredible you know where I'll do a couple days and then I'll have a day or two of producing something or I'm here doing vocals on somebody and so I'm not even playing yep. you know and uh, and so or we're working on the TV show and like now we're in post on a TV show for Sony for a Christmas special so when we leave here I'm gonna spend the rest of the day um, editing parts, you know, for the TV show. So it's kind of, but then I've got a, a session at six o'clock tonight. Yeah. So I kind of bounce around and I get juice from each of the things I do and it keeps me fresh. You know, I'm not so sure I would be great at doing three sessions a day every day. I think that's probably somebody else's job. Yeah, probably honestly. Could, could lead to burnout. Yeah, it's partially burnout, but I just I just don't think I'm that guy. You know, yeah. I'm I'm just not I'm not really wired that that way to want to want to do that. When you're producing an album, do you uh, do you play a lot on it, or do you? Uh... In general, I play a good bit. We just made this. Uh, uh, speaking of Josh Turner, we just made a, um, a like a bluegrass gospel record. It's something he's always wanted to do. It actually comes out in a few weeks, and we just finished it. And I mean, they are throwing it right out there, um, and. I did not play much on that. I got okay. really great bluegrass players, yeah. and we did a lot of acoustic stuff. And I played some on it, but I didn't play that much because um, it it was appropriate to. Ha I had this guy named Carl Miner, yes. who's a great acoustic guitar player, soloist, comes from the bluegrass world. He was playing most of the guitar on it because he should be playing most of the guitar on it. Yeah, uh, but I played some. I had a, I had a few yeah. few licks in there. Is it hard to produce and play at the same time? I actually like it. Okay. I was just working with Matt Rawlings on on Monday on a project he's doing. Matt Rawlings is one of the world's great piano, player. piano players, yeah. and and he did not hardly play the whole day. And and I worked with him a lot. So anytime he's uh, producing, he just will not hardly play. And we all want to play with him because he's Matt. Come play with us. But his vibe is that when he's producing. On the tracking thing, he wants to step back and have objectivity and not play. Where I like to have the phones on and be in the room with the guys and playing, because that's how I'm used to hearing things. How much, uh, how much help did Tony Brown give you in, in getting into the session scene? Pretty helpful. Yeah. Pretty helpful. I mean, Tony Brown is Tony Brown. Is, he was for a long time. He was the king of Nashville. And I um, made some demos with a singer-songwriter named Allison Moore 
and Tony signed her. We did a showcasing signed her, and Tony goes, you make the record. It's like, so the next thing I know, I was making a country record. And, um, and then I played a good bit on that record, and we wrote a song called Bring Me All Your Lovin', and Trisha Yearwood cut that. And so Tony said, man, why don't you come play on it? So he's playing on a Trisha Yearwood says, And actually, that, that opened the door for me to playing on some, on some country records. Yeah. So I played on that, and then I, Tony recommended me for some other things, and I worked for Tony as well. It was great. He's yeah. great. Yeah. And so that kind of opened up more of the, a little bit more of the mainstream Nashville yeah. session. Yeah. 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 And, and he, at that time, the music was really changing. Um, where, you know, the sort of early 90s, you know, the Alan Jackson Chattahoochee kind of a thing and the Garth Brooks thing um, was kind of going away and there was more of a pop and rock element. Um, to it, and so that's when I think guys like me and Tom Bukovac and you know that would play more humbucker guitars. Even though I'm playing a single coil right now, we yeah. play humbuckers a lot, you know. Yeah. And I think that 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 kind of changed things, you know. It's a different sound. And then, how did you start working with Kenny Chesney? Um, I produced a record for. Um, MCA on an artist named Shelly Fairchild, and they wanted to team me up with a with a, um, an, uh, more someone more schooled in the country idiom. So I co-produced it with Buddy Cannon, and I'd oh, never met him. Yeah. So this is two thousand, the end of two thousand, sometime in two thousand three. So we produced a record together. We became friends. We had a good time, and he said, "Why don't you come in and play?" on um, uh, Kenny Chesney's record. So in the fall of 2003, which like exactly 15 years ago, I went over to Studio 6 and overdubbed on some of his stuff and we hit it off. And then I tracked on his next project. And, um, and I, I guess I've been playing on his records ever since. So, but through Buddy Cannon, actually through producing a record is, is, how, is how I met Kenny. And then how did you end up touring with him? Um, I ended up touring with him because one of his, he knew that I played a lot because I had just done some Bob Seger dates. And one of his guys, he's very loyal to his band. He's had the same band since he started. And um, one of his guys in the band was, wanted to go off and be a solo artist. And... Um, this guy, Nick. So Nick was leaving the band, and um, so Chesney called and said, hey, man, Nick is, is leaving. You want to come out this summer? And I said, sure. You know, and, I, and I, I'd never seen him play live, you know? Yeah. And I didn't understand the thing he has live. So I went, and I, I, you know, we rehearsed, and I went out the first couple tour dates, and it's like the, you know, the amount of people that go to see him and... Um, the connection he has with his fans is an unusual thing. It's a very unusual thing. And um, it was great, but it was really surprising to me. I just didn't get it. And I went out there going like, you know, holy shit. You know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of people that know every word. And it was fun. Yeah, so you, you didn't get it beforehand, but once you once you saw him live and you saw his live, you know. Yeah, it's kind of know, a different charisma. thing than, than, yeah. than his records. And the thing about his gig is he likes to work on the weekends and not so much during the week. So that works for me. You know, I can, you know, even when he's actually out on a tour, Sunday you're back, and then you're leaving Thursday or Friday to, to go back out. Right. And that's, but, but it's like, it's like all spring and all summer, every single weekend you're out. So you give up your weekends, but it, it's, it's really fun. So how many dates do you normally do a year? Well, he did last year, he did like 50 some. Yeah. And but then next year he's just going to do a few dates, like yeah. 20, 20 dates or something. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's an interesting thing, and and it's an interesting, and the, and then the the other interesting thing about that is you see, because on a Saturday blowout stadium dates, there's like four bands, and it's not always the same bands. So I see all these artists and their bands and see what people are doing, and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. You know. So, what are, what are you learning from that? You said fascinating. 
Um, kind of a combination of a lot of things you don't want to do. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Because I, I, I heard a little hint. Yeah. Of, yeah. And then there's some really great stuff. You see some young bands that are incredible. And you go like, wow. And you see some players that you go like, wow. Like uh, Little Big Town has a really great band. And uh, their drummer and um, uh, the guy who actually in Little Big Town plays keys, Chester Thompson's son. Uh, yes, Akeel. Yeah, he's amazing. So on the last Skyville show, this Christmas special we, that we just did, uh, from seeing them play, I had Hubert and Akeel in the band. They're just fantastic players. Wow. You know, so you go out and you see people and go like, wow, I, I didn't know who these people are, but they sure are great, you know, so... Yeah. It's neat. I guess you enjoy the you know going between the studio stuff and the and the live stuff, getting yeah. the you know, the feedback of a live audience. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. who wouldn't like it? Yeah. You know, it's it's great. You play for a lot of people, and I mean, you know, but it's really it's not about playing for a lot of people. I gotta. That yeah. sounds dumb. It's like when we play with Pat McLaughlin and Douglas Corner. Yeah, it's the best, and there's you know a hundred people, hundred fifty people. It's yeah. incredible. He's incredible. So um, I play acoustic gigs with my wife, like at a homeless shelter, mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic experience. So it's really, it's it's you know, people say like, what's the coolest place you've ever played? It's not the place; it's the people. It's the people you're playing with. Like you're playing with these amazing people. There might be twenty. Like I'm playing with Jimmy Hall at um, Douglas Corner tomorrow night on yeah. Wednesday night. When they're gonna be. 30 people there, you know, at best, yeah. you know, but it'll be great because he's great yeah. and the band's great. It'll, you just go play to play, you know. I've slowly learned that. Play for the enjoyment of it. You played because, yeah, it makes yeah. you feel good. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I've, I've seen you play with Pat McLaughlin a number of times, and I've seen you play with, with uh, your wife, Ashley, and the, uh, the Pat McLaughlin gigs are, are are fun to get to see, you know, Pat, who's a great, you know, singer-songwriter, and then have Greg Morrow on drums and they're amazing. Michael yeah. Rhodes on bass yeah. and Michael Rhodes. You, the a lot of the music, the I learned how to play music being around Michael Rhodes. <clears throat> Actually, Michael Rhodes and Glenn Wharf, those two people, probably some of my biggest influences. They're bass players, right? But I just learned how to play in time and play music. Playing a zillion club gigs with those guys. Yeah, so great what, musicians. Yeah. What was it about about playing with them? Well, they have such great time, and okay. they're both very um, lyrical players. And I just, I don't know. I'm just around them, and I'm just soaking it up. And you know, I mean, Michael Rhodes is Michael Rhodes. You know, he's amazing. You know, so you play a lot of gigs with him, and you start to pick up on the musicality right. and the things that he does. And and Glenn is. Glenn, Glenn and I had a band together for a long time, and so we were in the trenches. We were in the trenches together, no, no doubt. Let's talk about some, uh, some important playing concepts. So what would be an important playing concept that you've learned through the years? I think the thing that I'm constantly working on is rhythm okay. and finding the, the rhythm of things, you know, and I think that applies to, to producing and vocals and you know just everything i think the rhythm of things is is really what i gravitate towards and also in playing rhythm not just you know you can i mean this will be a really kind of basic example but like you know you can have a song that's just eighth notes you know You know, you can maybe start the song like that, but then maybe you can mix it up and find a way to play rhythm. You know, you could play. Rather than just going dunk, 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 you can mix yeah. it up and find ways to find interesting parts inside uh, the rhythm of the song. And I'm a big Grateful Dead fan, and I love the way Bob Weir plays rhythm guitar because it's a, it's he kind of moves and you know in these especially on the 
to me, it's like between 67 and 77 is the era. You just hear them kind of move through the changes of the song, and uh, I like to do that. When it's appropriate. Sometimes yeah. it's best to just bang out the eights, you know, yeah. but yeah. So was, was that earlier playing, was that some of the Bob Weir style playing, or could you show us some of that style of rhythm playing? I mean, I think I kind of just did. Okay. I mean, it's, okay. it's like he would play, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if, if there's a, you know, and this will once again just be a real basic. If, if there's a song that was... sort of move yeah. around and I mean I love that you know yeah. but you, you have to also know in recording you know when to shut it down you know it might be if there's another guitar and the other thing I've learned is how to work with other players you know and so you would have to be aware that if there was another guy playing you know if he was playing probably be appropriate for me to just go just to kind of stay out of the way yeah. so it's it's music and you're playing music with other people and you're doing the appropriate things and you're not fighting your way against somebody and but yeah but 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 I love the thing of finding little things that kind of move around you know on the records that I like there's there's usually some of that stuff going on and yeah. it's usually not perfectly executed, so um, I'm thankful in this era that people like that. Could you talk a little bit more about the challenges of working with another guitar player in the studio? Most of the guys that you work with, I mean, everybody in Nashville that's doing sessions, they're all amazing. They're all great. They're all, I mean, you yeah. guys have interviewed all the guys. They're all amazing players, so there's a real joy in working with another player and finding your space, you know, and it changes song by song. Once song, I might have the lick or take off and the other guy lays back, just kind of finding. And the other great thing I find about playing with other guitar players, I mean, almost without exception, by the end of the session or the gig, I will have learned something that I didn't know before. There's always something new that you watch somebody play and go like, that was amazing, you know, or how did you do that, you know, or they'll make some kind of a sound and you go, like, God, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And so that's the joy, you know, you, yeah. you, you learn from them. And, um, and there's a great joy if you can find a good thing playing with somebody, the, the interplay is really, it's very uh, rewarding. So Kenny, on the, you'd mentioned on these sessions where you would, you know, pick up something from another player. Can you give us an example of that? have to think about who it was, but somebody was doing a great lo-fi rhythm trick, and um, I was, I loved it. So if you can hear my guitar turned off through the thing, if it was like a song that had, it had a lick like yeah. that, and uh, um, it was like, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, Red Hot. But we played rhythmically, and you just kind of use the delay, but with a real kind of messed up sound. I think it was more like that, where we're... I mean, that's 
sounds interesting yeah. to me as a poem. It's kind of yes. an eighth note, and it's kind of giving you the upbeat. It's, you know, it's the, an eighth note, yeah, and it's more of a distorted sound, and because yeah. my guitar sounds really not that distorted, yeah. so I like that. Let's talk a little bit about gear for a bit. Tell us a bit about this Strat style guitar. This is a Russ Paul. He calls him an RP Junior. It's a Russ Paul guitar, and it's just a Stratocaster from parts. But he puts it together, and he winds his own pickups, and they sound great. A lot of people have his Telecasters and Stratocasters. Um, they sound great. They just play great, and they sound great. And, I mean, I've got a really great old Strat, and I kind of end up playing this. It's just great. It's a great instrument. And what, what about it, you know, makes you want to play it? It just plays like butter, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's just, just the smoothest, you know. The pickups just sound. Turn it down a little bit. set up great I mean they're just and a lot of times on Stratocasters the treble pickup is too trebly you know and his just sound I mean it plays great it's just does everything that I want it to do. So it's, it's just a really, really, it's a very uh, well-made instrument. And uh, I like that. And the other thing I recently got, I got the Ed O'Brien Fender Strat with the um, sustainer in it. Yeah. That's a really good guitar too. Yeah. So does this have some type of uh, modified nut on there? Yeah, he did that. It's because a lot of times on Fender guitars, or just on guitars in general, yeah. The 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 um, G or the B, it's a you, it ends up being a little sharp down here. Yeah. So he put that in there, and it just it just plays in tune really good. Yeah. I mean that's fantastic. He, I, he did it. I don't know. It just I got about it. I started playing and going like, I love this. Tell us about some of your your main amplifiers that you use a lot in the studio. Um, I use uh, a Matchless a lot, which is right there. Yeah. And then I use Fenders a lot. Um. And I have a really nice deluxe, which is what I'm playing through right now. And I use Tweed Deluxes a lot. And actually, one of the things I like is a Matchless and a Tweed Deluxe together is a really good sound for me. Yeah. I, I, I like that. And, and then I have an old 69 Super Lead right there. That's a really good sounding amp. So I just have, you know, just the basic food groups, you know, and there's a a really good AC30 that's right behind the cameraman. Yeah. That's a, that's good, you know. So you'd mentioned com combining amps. I guess the uh, the the matchless with with a little bit more of its high end and it's and, and more chimey. Yeah, yeah. It complements the uh, complements the Tweed Deluxe. The, the Tweed that, Deluxe, which is real mid rangey. Yeah. You know, so the combination of those two to me is a really good. You know, and then I have a B. I like to play a B bender a lot. I got a B bender right there, and um, the uh, and a Gretsch. Uh, you know, kind of the, you know your your basic your just basic stuff. You know, I like having a Gretsch. I like having a humbucker guitar, and um, that SG is the one I use live a lot. And but I really like playing a B bender, so I've got a, a, my B bender telly there. That yeah, you know? that seems like an unusual. Uh an unusual thing for more of a, a I mean, more of a rock oriented player because the B bender seems to be more of a, a a country guy thing. Well, I mean, I could demonstrate for you a little bit what yeah. I like about it. You know, if you yeah. want, let me just do that. I sort of have a different way of doing the B bender because I don't do the hot licks fast thing on, on the B bender. Um, uh, you know, the uh, Clarence White. I mean, he was the guy that started it, and Marty Stewart has carried that tradition on, and they're they're both amazing. And, um, but Jimmy Page also played one. So I'm yeah. sort of more, I play it more on ballads, really. You know, if you have like. It's just, I mean, self-explanatory. It sounds great. Or for a minor thing.
great sound, sound and thing. So I do just more kind of slow, kind of hippie steel, yeah. you know. I mean, who wouldn't like that? <laughs> it sounds so cool, you know? So yeah, so that's kind of my thing is yeah. I find like on ballads, um, and even if there is a steel player playing, I even still like to do, and we sort of bounce off of each other. And uh, so that's, um, and it's very basic stuff that I play on. It's really more looking for a note inside of a chord, you know. Just looking for little notes inside the chord that, that you can bend, or at the end of a phrase, you know. I love that sound. Yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah. Can you tell us about this SG? Uh, this is a 62 Custom Shop, and I got it in 2003 or 2004, and um, I use this a lot on the road. Sounds great. Cleans up nice. Bend the neck. Pete Townsend style. <laughs> and it's, I've just used it a lot. It's a, just a great guitar. Yeah. Is this and, is this stock? Have you changed the pickups out or anything crazy like that? Completely stock. Yeah. Completely, completely, right. totally stuck. Yeah, and, and that was a great tone you had there, which kind of leads us into you know pedal board talk. What was the what was the overdrive that you had on there? Uh, that is uh, this weird pedal that I actually got from Bob, and I don't I don't even know what it's called. It doesn't it, it it's a prototype, and um, it's it's a kind of a fuzzy distortion, but it cleans up good, and. Um, it has a, a really nice bottom end. With distortion pedals, sometimes your bottom end goes away. But okay. this, you know. Yep. On your bottom end. Yep, that's, that's one of our old uh, custom shop overdrives that we made when we were still under the visual sound name. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's and, good. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us uh, tell us the, uh, about the rest of the stuff that you've got on your on your board there. Yeah, it's a, I always have some type of a Line Six, like the M9 or an M5. And I have a couple different boards, and but this is the one that stays in my studio, and um, it um, it um, it's like a Swiss Army knife. There's good delays. There's a good. Uh, uh, vibrato in there. It, there's a really good wah in there with the, you use with the controller, so I use that. And uh, then I have an old blues driver and a good fuzz. Um, and I really like the uh, rocket pedals, the thing um, that's next to the octafuzz. Or the and, Archer? Yeah, which is like a Klon clone. And I've got an old Klon on my main studio board, and that gets pretty close to it. Yeah. So and, and it really colors the tone which sometimes you want, you know. And then I've got a couple of good delays, and I've got this delay over here, which is which is really good. And then this does a whole bunch of stuff. But the other good thing to know is that this... simulator but it's really noisy and really big so I have it in a loop but I just love it it's just it's a it just sounds right to me so um, this is what and, and I don't use it live because it's too big and it has to be in a loop but man it's like to me the best you know it's this 
all right there for me. So I use that a lot. And um, then um, uh, I've got a couple analog man pedals that are really great that I, that I use for, for fuzz tones. And um, a guy named Andy Harrison makes that reveal pedal that's, that's there. That's, that's really great clean boost. And he makes a really good distortion box too. And um, yeah, just kind of the, uh, the basic, um, the, just all, all the basic stuff, you know. I, I think that, um, oh, and I also use the, of course, we're here at the True Tone. I use their power supplies. Everybody uses their power supplies. They're just the best power supplies. Thanks. And so, so you don't see it, but it's on all my stuff, you know. They're, yeah. They're really good and they're really quiet, and I know it's kind of become the standard. You know, is 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 um, is we really like is we really like those a lot. I mean, I've got a lot of pedals here because this is kind of a lab where I do overdubs for people. I want to quickly get a lot of different sounds, and it's fun. I have a lot of different stuff set up, yeah. but I find that going to gigs and if I'm going to a session and just carrying a few things in my car, I find myself taking less and less. Okay. And really, just being more about the guitar and the amp, you know, and less about like I know through my Tweed Deluxe and like this guitar or a Strat, you know, and maybe one overdrive, you know, in a reverb. I can kind of do everything that I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier when we were setting up, you were talking about how things kind of revolve around how you know you you will use something for a while and you'll get tired of it and then you'll you might come back to it. Yeah. 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 I think that's really true with uh, with guitars. Is that um, I mean I've I've been playing for a while now and it's like I have some guitars that I don't use for a while and then I'll circle back to them and go like Wow, I forgot how great this is. Or it was good to get away from that because something else gave me inspiration. I think different guitars for me personally give me more inspiration than pedals do. You know, I think having a like I have these Yamaha hollow bodies that you asked me about. Um, I haven't been using those for a while, and um, but I may circle back and start playing those. And go like I forgot how great this is. Wow, now I'm inspired to play a, a way that I wasn't playing before have a slightly different sound that's going to inspire me to do new things. And I think that that's a legit way to be, but it is also every bit as legit to be, this is my guitar that I've used all these years, this is my amp, this is my thing, and I don't want to do anything else. There's guys like that, like JT Cornfloss plays this blue telly, that that's what he plays. And he's amazing. And but that's, I mean, he has other guitars that he brings, but that's kind of what he always plays. And that's a totally legit way to be, you know? Yeah. I just might not be exactly that way. Circling back around, uh, you know, your, your board today, uh, you kind of put it together, but uh, a lot of your board's exact tone solutions put together. And we they do kinda, all my stuff, all yeah. my stuff. We want to give them props. Oh, they're, yeah, they're yeah. the best, yeah. Barry and, and, and Greg for all the, the great uh, builds that they have and also for using our, our power supply on many of them. I think they've turned because so many players, you know, have, they work on their boards that I think you can, you can really directly uh, attribute, you know, part of the success of the power supplies to Xactone because everybody uses their stuff and that's what they use. Yeah. So, I mean, my stuff is quieter than it's ever been, you know. It's like I was playing earlier, I was playing single coil pickups and wasn't very noisy, right? Yeah, so really, that's because they got the good power supply thing going on. Your your wife has had a a, a documentary come out. Yeah, on her. Yeah, uh, I guess you'll be uh, you'll be playing some shows with her and doing maybe doing some I promotion so. for that. Yeah, are uh, you you've got uh, the show coming up uh, with Jimmy yeah. Hall. Yeah, I guess you'll you'll be hitting the road next year again with Kenny Chesney. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. What else you got coming up? I'm producing a couple of records. I got a couple of records coming up, and uh, I'm excited about that. I'm doing a couple of things for BMG, and um, the rest of my year is, you know, pretty full. You know, it's pretty good. It's good to be, it's good to be doing stuff. Yeah, and Skyville. People yeah. need to make sure and catch uh, yeah. Skyville, where you're the uh, musical director and producer of the show. You've had yeah. some amazing guests. You've had, you've gotten to play with Billy Gibbons. And... Yeah, we did a Billy Gibbons show. That that was real. Here's a, here's the thing about Billy Gibbons is that. 
he, you know, everybody knows this thing. He uses sevens on his guitar. He was actually playing an SG, so he uses sevens on his guitar, like these super light strings. And he has um, a magnetone amp, which actually I have a magnetone amp, and they're mm -hmm. great amps. He has the master volume, I mean, almost completely off, and the gain is all the way up. So he has this super distorted sound, but it's very low volume. Which you would think, you know, there's a guy that's going to be blasting his way. Super low volume player. Sounds amazing. Wow. You know, very smart thing to do. Yeah. You've also had Greg Ullman on the show and Chris Christofferson. You've gotten yeah. to play with some amazing yeah. artists. Yeah, we have Greg Ullman's last videotaped performance. So we're excited, excited about that. That was good. Yeah. Well, Kenny, I really appreciate you uh, letting us come into your home and letting us, uh, you know, interview you and uh, thank you so much for being on the you show. You got it. I played on Seven Year Itch with uh, Etta James's record with Reggie Young. Yeah. You learned much from Reggie? It was a mind-blowing experience. Yeah. I played on about, for you know, the Barry Beckett era, I played on about five or six records in a row with, with Reggie. Yeah. It was like, holy shit, man. He's like, he's amazing. Probably the best, greatest session player of all time. But you know, you get in a room with him, and and you like realize um, just how great he is. His touch, his finesse, his intonation, and um, it's never any kind of big fancy anything. It's just you just hear it back and go like, "Wow, yeah, that was that was an amazing experience for me." You know, actually, I, I was gonna trying to get to play some solos on the Etta James record, and they wouldn't let me play any solos on it. I said, well, you know, I'm ready to, you know, oh, Reggie's coming in. It's like, oh, okay, Reggie's coming in, you know. And then when I got the record and listened to it, I went like, I get it. Yeah, this is why. <laughs> this is why he's Reggie Young. <laughs> this has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.